What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he just liquidated his winery from Francis Ford Coppa's Megalopolis. It's Andy Greenwald! It's the least I can do for Francis after all uh, he's done for me. This is my last pot because I'm joining Megalopolis as the art director. What I said to you when we pointed this out to me and for people who aren't following the news, I, for people who don't have the word Megalopolis in their um, Google alert It's hard search, for me like to pronounce Christos. that word. Much like Ar- archipelago. No, it's fine. It's all part of um, the word salad that is our life. It, it, our, our guy, Frankie C., Francis mm-hmm. Ford Coppola, has poured his own fortune into a uh, science fiction film uh, that he's currently lensing in uh, outside of Atlanta, like all science fiction films. <laughs> and there was just some reports of some strife and like the entire art department quitting and the special effects team quitting and everyone quitting. And so my do thing you, about this is... Do you know what the best shit about that though was? What's that? Adam Driver like called Deadline to basically be like, I've been on some bad sets and it was like kind of obvious. It was like Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> and he yeah. was like, and this isn't a bad set. He called deadline like 1-800 It's in deadline. the Mike Fleming blog post yeah. about this movie. And it's like Coppola being like, look, sometimes the entire art department and VFX team quit or I fire them. And it, that's just the way it goes. But we're on budget and it's going to be done next year. And then there's also like one person who took issue with like the characterization of this as a, a runaway apocalypse now, you know, nightmare train was Adam Driver who wow. chimed in with this paragraph long statement. Local man speaks up in defense of, of elderly. Direct. I mean, my only thing is it's shocking because, you know, collectively we have no, no historical record of what happens when Francis Ford Coppola is just given a blank check. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like historically, that's never been a problem. No, he's always worked never. On, on really strict budgets and on really strict schedules. And honestly, that stuff only gets better in your 80s. It's like holding on to classified documents. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It's just like the, the older you get, the more like razor sharp you are about what's in front of you and what you're doing. 
right? I, like it's I just, it's just laugh Cause I'm like, Oh yeah. Like my mom is in her eighties and, and just imagining her directing megalopolis. But then it, it hits me that. Yeah. Like she's also Joe Biden's age or, or my dad being president. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't see no notes, no notes. I like, I just look forward to a robust campaign season. Um, this is a little bit of a grab bag episode, right? Because, uh, we were sort of casting around looking for something to watch for this week. And I think I found something, but I can't in good conscience, make you watch another, uh, (laughs) Scottish ensemble (laughs) show. So to all those people who are waiting for my thoughts on the rig, uh, on Amazon prime, which is about a, uh, environmental disaster striking a oil drilling rig in the North sea. Uh, I like it. It's real good. (laughs) Oh, well, you know what? I can, I can meet you. Here, because I'm sure many, many, many listeners, people are coming up to me on the street and they're saying, sir, sir, when are we going to get your thoughts on the latest series from the French creator of Call My Agent about a young multiracial cast of up and coming stand up comedians in the Paris summertime called Standing Up? And I'm here to tell you, Chris, that it is definitely, definitely a show about up and coming Parisian stand up comics in the summertime. What stream? 100%. Is that Netflix? that is on Netflix. And boy, yeah, I really enjoyed seeing Paris in the summertime. So did and you that fire that up it. last night? I fired it up the other night. You, you know, now I'm leaning into it. My viewing habits are completely opaque to you. You will never know what I'm watching or when I'm watching it. I think it's, I will, it's, after 11 years, we need to keep things spicy here, right? It's time. This is how <laughs> we... Yes, the other podcast I did listen to was Dan Savage on the Ezra Klein show talking about how to keep things interesting in the bedroom. And maybe they <laughs> means the Zoom room also. So I'm taking some some keys. I'm taking something from that playbook. Yeah. Um, if things but, are getting like, a little vanilla in bed, try investing all your money in a sci-fi utopian vision. <laughs> Why not? Adam Driver yeah. will call you. That would have been one of the things on the Kickstarter if Francis Ford Coppola hadn't just like sold the winery. And do you feel like Sophia was like, just just give me the shares of the sparkling? Like you right. know what I mean? Like Marie right. and Tunet isn't going to pay for itself. Um, do you feel like the people like like Fanny Herrero, who created Call My Agent, a, sh- a really charming show that I really enjoyed watching and was hoping that she would strike gold again with this? Uh-huh. Do you think they, they're like did annoyed she, when? N- no, <laughs> I want to say. How many it, episodes it's hard did you watch? Two, but it's hard. There's a reason why shows about stand-up comedy don't often do well. It's because you have to write funny stand-up comedy. Um, and then also there are, literally are no stakes. I mean, I understand... It? Yeah. If, if, if you're a devoted fan of the first 12 minutes of the WTF podcast, maybe the stakes feel a little more like lived in. But beyond that, it's really, it's really not that stakesy. Um, so no, but I do feel like the name of the show in France, like, so, so call my agent in France is called a 10%, you know, which I, which I kind of like, like that's what the agents take. Call my agent. Okay. This show is called troll, troll, funny. It's just called funny. But then some, the bright boys in the back of Netflix are like, we'll call it standing up because they're stand-ups. Right. You know what I mean? I got nothing else to say about the show. Paris looks great. <laughs> I, I feel the same. I mean, like, I, I've been watching this show, The Rig. It's uh, created by David McPherson. It stars everybody who dies on Game of Thrones and Line of Duty. I think that's yeah. the best way of putting it. Great. Uh, and it's just, it's just a super entertaining. I kind of wish that there were more shows like this made in the States. It's six-episode thriller but it's on Amazon Prime. I'm just biding my time until Last of Us comes out, so I'm enjoying myself with that. We wanted to hit a bunch of different things today, though. There's a, you know, I think one of the things about the Golden Globes is it really lingers in the mind. You know, it really, I think it's like, it's not one of those like sort of channel surfing TikTok 
attention span things. It really like is an award show that demands waiting a few days, thinking about it, considering what <laughs> yeah. you want to say about it. So we're going to weigh it on the Golden Globes 48 hours mm-hmm. later. We're also what a heavy chat. footprint on the culture, you know? Yeah. Really? A little, little bit about Rachel Symes' Bella Bajaria profile in The New Yorker. So uh, this is being passed around quite a bit on social media. Oh, I, I thought we were talking about Joe Nacacella's latest dance review. We in can the do New that Yorker. too. Oh, no. <laughs> I've really, really done a poor job preparing for this. Can I ask you a question just between the two of us after podcasting for 11 years? Mm-hmm. Do you think that... Because one thing I've noticed about you recently is you've been starting a lot of shows. And you do okay. it for me and you do it for you. But do we, do, need to, you. do we need to invent a new character for you where you grow yeah. a mustache and it's Dennis Eckersley, <laughs> Andy, and it's the closer who comes and finishes shows? Yes! I like, love don't this. Don't you want to know what happens in Copenhagen Cowboy or, oh. or Rogue Heroes? Oh, oh, you're doing this for me. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm impressed that you're still curious, Chris. Like, I, I guess this is the time on our 11th anniversary to just announce that I don't think I'm curious anymore. <laughs> it just, I just, I'm okay with mystery. Okay. You know what I mean? I thought you were going to say that, like, I could do a bit on a podcast where I just watch the last two hours of Sons of Anarchy and just un, just cook. You know what I mean? And just, oh, oh yeah. And you're just like, clearly the problem with the show is this. <laughs> yeah. Like, let me, let me, let me break it down and diagnose what happened here. You probably could. Do that. Um, but so you're a completist. You're, you're a completist. Like when you read a book by an author you like, do you still, even at our advanced age, do you feel the need to finish all, read all the books by that author? Like, do you need to do that? Oh, I don't feel like, I don't need to be a completist when it comes to individual authors. Uh, okay. With filmmakers, I try to be pretty completist. Like when I'm, when I'm talking about them, like I try to have seen all their work relatively recently. Wow. Uh, <laughs> what a burn on me. What a I subtweet. With shows... Yeah, it's actually funny. It's the same thing with when you're reading a novel, and you have in that in your mind there is a the amount of time I've spent reading this thing. I need to be able to look myself in the mirror and say I finished it, and that's how I feel about TV shows. So once you get past episode two, yeah, or three of something, it's like, what am I going to just have been like? I watched four hours of this show, but decided not to watch the last four hours. Was that was that why am I doing that? Was that me? But movie phone. Um, maybe maybe I should just tell you what happens at the end of Copenhagen Cowboy. That is what you guys did. For the record, we talked a lot with Sean on on Monday about the new Netflix series. I was going to say Nicholas Winding Refn's new Netflix series. I think we can all say his last Netflix series, <laughs> Copenhagen Cowboy. And I really liked it. And spoiler, I liked it more than anybody else on the podcast. Having no. not finished it, I think so. Sean was weirdly... I think he was just like, I want Nick to make a real movie, which is like a very Sean thing to say. It's a a Sean demand. I I just feel like for people who skip that podcast because they aren't interested, I I would advocate give it a shot. I really did enjoy it. But but I would also say, and I mean the podcast, don't watch the show. I just thought a podcast, (laughs) we triumphed over. We need the listens. (laughs) We really do. Um, No, no, it's just that we had agreed before we recorded that because you guys had finished, that I would hop off the call yeah. before you started spoiling. And like within 45 seconds, you said, I'm not going to do it again. But you were like, well, here's what the show's actually about. I, I meant that like more like universally. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So so uh, uh-huh. we, we have the Globes. We have this Bella Bajaria right. profile, which I think we we don't have to, I'm not going to spoil Rachel Symes' year-long reporting, but we can talk a little bit about some of the learnings we've taken from that. And then we have also, the... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just the Ant-Man trailer. 
Ant-Man trailer, but then at the end, I do have a Daddington thing I would like to talk to you about. Of course, about. man. But, but, I mean, this but, but, is 50% but, your podcast. If you want to dictate, if you want, let me tell you something. You're 11. Yeah. Should you start hosting? You're 11? Um, no. I also think that, you know, per the addendum to my contract that Daniel X sent me at, at, at EOY, that is not 50%. It is not 50% mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's been brought to my attention that it is not. Yeah. But I'm lucky to be here. Um, but... Okay, yeah. So, we'll, okay, well, let, let's run through those things. Let's do Globes. Let's do Globes yeah. and Ant-Man because those are pressing cultural issues. Uh, for some reason, this felt like I hadn't seen an award show in 25 years. <laughs> like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, it was like, it was kind of like s- smoking pot for the first time. I guess like, there's two two sort of separate tracks we could cover here. There's Gerard Carmichael, who we're great admirers of as a host. Yeah. And I think also what Gerard Carmichael's, um, I guess, point of view well, what that meant to the show and how it set the tone, but also like, what's the role of a host, which weirdly you and I have come back to over and over again, as we've mm-hmm. kind of talked about these award shows over the years. I, we don't need to belabor it because obviously the HFPA is, is just an opaque and weird organization. And these awards don't truly impact the real uh, like awards of the Oscars. I think they can develop some momentum. And if somebody gives a great speech, it might be like, Hey, like, you know, mm-hmm. this this guy is really throwing his hat in the ring or, or or whatever. But Sean and Amanda did a great job sort of breaking down all the like, did this matter? Did this not matter? What is this, what does this mean going forward stuff? I thought the most interesting thing that they brought up was Michelle Yeoh being kind of like very obviously kind of being like, I probably won't be Kate Planchett, so this is my awards acceptance speech. Yeah. And like kind of doing the thing. But um, you know, I was curious whether where you want to start. You want to start with like who well, won or who hosted? No. Let's do big picture, and then, I mean, literally, you be Sean, I'll be Amanda. Let's okay. do it. Let's cosplay. Um, I I think Sean, I mean, he always makes very good points, but one of the really good points he made on this show was that the industry, if not the culture, does kind of need an award show in this spot. Like, I, it does make sense to help sort of focus the mind in terms of where we are, what people have liked, what they haven't liked, what what new things could come across our radar. And I mean that both for movies and TV. And also to sort of focus the Oscar race now that everything has become diffuse. Everything is either streaming or not, and there is no narrative anymore. So in, this, in, in that sense, like, something should go in this spot, and it was weird last year for there not to be. And I think I agree with him. I also think that the Golden Globes is so uniquely not suited to be the show that it feels it must become given what happened over the last two years. Like the Golden Globes reputation was that it was a silly party, right? And that's what made it good. And mm-hmm. then someone was just like, your silly party looks like the Black Klansman that isn't black. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like the other ones. Like, it's just foreign white people in a room that I picture as like Snoke's throne room from <laughs> The Last Jedi. <laughs> Like, that is what I imagine the voting chamber looks like. Right. And so then they had to be like, we're sorry. We're going to do better. We're going to performatively fix this. And you know what? I don't even need to be that cynical and jaded. Maybe maybe there's not there's an element to it that's not performative. Like, more inclusion, more diversity. This is broadly good. It's good for any workplace, and it's good for any organization, and it's also good for the product, for the award shows, to be looking at different performers, to be looking at different films, welcoming them into the party. So... I do think that's important to say, but it did put the Golden Globes in such a bizarre, impossible pickle where the the light, silly show that everyone knows doesn't matter, but we're here for larger career-driven or entertainment-driven purposes had to be something more than that. 
and it kind of tripped on itself because of that. So I, 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 I laugh knowingly at your observation that it had been 25 years since we had seen one because I kind of felt that too, but I also felt like it had been many, many years since I had seen one this um, atonal. Mm. You know, just sort of just like, and we're only an hour three, you know? How much do you think that that's down to Carmichael and how much is it down to just like everybody getting up on stage after Carmichael's speech and being like, thank you so much to the Hollywood Foreign Press. But but it also was this weird mix of styles and like the best moment to me by far was was, was Zelensky because... You know, he the only Hollywood foreign precedent I recognize is Vladimir. Is he going to go into the SAGs when they go on Netflix next year? Do you think he, he goes to the ESPYs is my question. Oh, a million percent. Yeah. A mil- the Bobby V Award? Is that, Jimmy, is that Jimmy V. <laughs> Bobby Valentine? No, no. The Bobby Valentine Award for wearing a fake mustache in a war zone. <laughs> it's the key to podcasting. I've learned it in the second decade. You just keep talking. There are no mistakes. There are no mistakes. You just keep the tape rolling, Kaya. Turn all the cameras on. The best moment of this year's Golden Globes for me was Regina Hall reading why Kevin Costner wasn't there. Yes. And it was like, we stand with Santa Barbara. Like That was so funny. And look, again, appropriate bracketed disclosure. The weather here is gnarly and terrifying and dangerous, and it sucked. And there's been real flooding and loss of life and loss of property. I'm I had, not fl- laughing I had about flooding that. on my street, I'll have you know. I was basically an, an auxiliary member of the Dutton family. <laughs> I was like, out. <laughs> I, did, I, so I told you what I did, right? Like, yes. There was like a flash flood on my street. I had to move my wife's mini. Uh, you did tell me. Do you want to you you talk about how you hulked out? And I didn't did hulk out. Did you move out, it with your arms? But I, I went out. I actually just told this story on Rewatchable, so I feel like I'm repeating myself. But like I, it, wow. like the water came up to my wow. to my re-listenables of, now of my legs, and I was like, "This is really like." I honestly hope there's life after death, so that I can still hear how Andy has to pay tribute to me tearfully when I'm like was washed <laughs> away on like the only street in Los Feliz that flash flooded. Were you like this? Truly, is the way of water, and then you <laughs> then you turned to the camera and dove in. Um, I, I just, it was, it was just, it was everything that was wrong about this award show, but also kind of everything that was right about what it could have been, which is to say, I'm sure Kevin Costner had trouble getting on a private plane or a, a, an automobile to go to this award show. Yeah. Um, Kyle I also can tell think you, it sucks to take the grapevine at this time of year. A million percent. Yeah. I think it's also worth saying he didn't give a shit because this is pretend. You know, this is pretend in a deeper way than it was before. And that was kind of pervasive. So there was that element of we are, we it, we cannot let people in on the joke anymore, you know, because then the whole thing will fall apart. Like the stakes were weirdly high for this as an idea because NBC's contract is up. So this was basically an audition for it to continue to exist because the Hollywood Foreign Press does not just throw this party on its own. It throws it due to the largesse of the NBC Universal Comcast Shinehart Wig Company wanting to put the party on TV every year. And with the ratings what they are, this is what the, the lowest rated, the second lowest rated, six million people tuned in for it. It just felt like a mess to me. Um, I also, I make as, the as, as joke. A thing. I yeah. make that ESPYs joke, but they also picked the night that there was no football. Like they purposely yeah. moved it. Uh, intentionally, yeah. To they Tuesday, tried. yeah. They tried to pick their spot. That doesn't, that doesn't work. You know, you mentioned the, the the how funny the Regina Regina Hall moment was. 
I'm trying to think of like the funniest things that I've ever I've ever seen or or experienced. You know, it's like the first 600 times you do the Borat my wife thing. Uh, yeah. You know, there's there's lots of curb moments, yeah. Bill Murray moments that I can think of. But Chris, just so you know, the middle 600 times you do it, not funny. Then the it comes back around. It, it becomes back so around. so funny again. Do you know what might be number one right now? What's that? Is Miguel Sapochnik accepting for House of okay. the Dragon? Thank you, thank you. Okay, <laughs> this was really the only thing I wanted to talk about. So not I mean, they're for two reasons, uh, and those two reasons are Emma Darcy and Millie Alcock were the only two people who went up on stage with him when he accepted for Best Drama, mm-hmm. and he no longer works on House mm-hmm. of the Dragon. Uh, he he left. You can read Matt Bellany's reporting about about what happened there. It was essentially like a disagreement about the role of his wife on the show, or uh, reportedly that was the that was the kernel behind that was the story behind this. But he accepted on behalf of, I guess everybody or whatever, mm-hmm. and didn't thank Ryan Condal, didn't thank nope. George Martin. No. Nope. And then I was watching him, and he was just like, and you know, when we premiered this show, there was just such a sigh of relief because it was walking in the footsteps of such a great achievement, which was Game of Thrones. And I was like, that's way to pay it forward, brother, man. That's really cool. And then I was like, oh yeah, you directed Game of Thrones. It was a legendary shitlord performance. Like one for the ages. One that has almost turned me entirely around on him and House of the Dragon. (laughs) Like, it was amazing. And let's really go through it, right? Because first of all, you don't need me to be the voice saying that it is it is clown town that that show won best drama television series of the year. Like, I, I, I feel like even the show's most passionate defenders would struggle making that argument. I don't know that they, the people who made House of the Dragon thought that. Like, I mean, did... That's what I'm saying. Like, there so, was nobody there. Like, there's like so, 12 people on stage no, for White Lotus. They didn't think they were going to win. There's also that piece of like, I'm not going to the Golden Globes because that's not a real thing anymore, um, especially because we're not going to win. Miguel Sapochnik was like, I'll go and I won't get dressed up. Um, I mean, he, he dressed, dressed like- up. He just didn't tuck yeah. his shirt in and he was wearing white sneakers. He dressed up like we dress up to host FYC events in that same room. You know right. what I mean? Like he, yeah, he, he Hollywood. I, I, I stopped up. doing that now. Not FYC events, but I stopped dressing up. I just, I'm like, it's ODB like, up here. Like I'm, it's just uncut <laughs> raw CR. You stopped dressing up for anything or for like no, hosting just, and moderating events? I guess like, I mean, it's not, that's not true. It's not like I show up wearing like a fucking Liverpool tracksuit, but like, I, I don't like pretend that I wear blazers. You know what I mean? I, I was just reading this article about the head of security for the number one seed in the NFC, Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, don't get your hopes he, up. He wears... Excuse me, what, what role are you playing on this podcast? Sean's role? He just like holding space, holding space for Jets fans? Just that this, the, the guy says that he dresses in South Philly tuxedos, which are velour tracksuits, which yeah. I really liked. Um, it, well, look, he, he was taking cues from GQ for CR and uh, just... The, the entitlement of like, I guess we're just going to have a go at this live thank you speech was just wild. So you have the two performers who play the same character at different ages, just sort of gently pawing each other in a show of solidarity behind him. And the rest of the people working on the show presumably are, are working just, on the show. Just like it's 4 a.m. in Belfast and like 
ping pong balls dressed as dragons are raining down on them. You know what I mean? Including Ryan Condal, who did co-create the show, who is the showrunner of the show, and moved his family to the UK to make the show. And then the show wins Best Series, and he doesn't even get mentioned. It's wild. It's wild, right? Like, I'm just trying to think of, like, who... There aren't many opportunities for people who no longer work for a company showing up to represent the company. <laughs> it's true. Still, you know I, mean, I, mean? I, think he, I think he has like an overall deal with HBO. I think he's still part of the family. Okay. So, but, yeah. so it's, not like, it's not like Bill going to the ESPYs. Right. Exactly. And being like, being like, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, okay. I get it. But it was just, I, I loved it. I loved it. It was so crazy. And it was crazy in a way that the Golden Globes should be crazy. You know, I, it, that's the thing. We can go through the winners and losers, and broadly, I feel like the same way that I felt on Monday, which is when people who I think are deserving win a trophy, I'm glad for them. I think yeah. that's broadly good for them, and they're happy, and maybe it does build into a narrative that these are projects worth paying attention to, that are worthy, that, you know, could get other awards. Um, I, I did think, though, again, they just, they're just ending up in this mushy middle where it's like, if you're going to be different, Fucking be different. Give the best picture Oscar, Oscar, excuse me, give the best picture globe to Top Gun. Give it to Black Panther too. Just be legends. You know what I mean? Don't just be like, well, the Fablemans is nice. What do you think would have happened if Top Gun had won without Tom Cruise there, but also after the Shelly Miscavige joke? What do I think would have happened? Well, not what would have well, happened, but like it was awkward enough that he did the, the Gerard Carmichael did the joke about Shelly yeah. Scavenge after, and like then Glenn Powell and JLS had to come out and be like, Tom Cruise is a great boss. I, I, I appreciate Gerard Carmichael. <laughs> you know, I think there's a way where if you squint, the way of water is about Sea Org. <laughs> sure. You know, and, and, all, and all the brave people we've lost along the way. So, I, I, but do you get the broader point? Do you get what I mean? Like, if you're, it just has never made sense to me for the Golden Globes to be like, no, really, take us seriously. We're just as viable as the Oscars or Emmys. No, no I be think the silly I drunk Mike party. White's, be the chaos I, Mike, agents. Yeah, yeah, Mike White was like, that's what I want from the Golden Globes. Is Mike White being like, they stopped serving food when I got here and I've just been drinking white wine for three hours. And yes. now I'm up here crying about Jennifer Coolidge and trying to speak Italian. That was That's, that's what I want. Um, I thought that a lot of the show actually like, it, it was too long. Uh, I, I yes, sort of feel like I've made this comment before about like they need to do two Emmys a year, but maybe they should just do uh, not Hollywood Foreign Press Association like uh, advocacy on my part here, but maybe the Globes should just be a TV Globes and a movie Globes and you do it at different times of the year or something like that. But yeah, I, I feel like the the sort of mishmash of, of um, TV and, and film winds up being like kind of a slog and and if you skip the tv part then maybe you can skip the ryan murphy part yes i mean i i i agree with you i i think that's a tough argument to make when it's getting six million viewers that they need more award shows but i i I do agree with you i mean i think that there's this is this just also leads into the kind of essentially schizophrenic nature of the of the project right because the tv and movie aspects of it absolutely if you just take it objectively seriously have very different goals. Mm-hmm. The movie side is to it, it, you're you're part of the the end it's, of the relay race of Oscar season. Yeah, right. You're it's, a crucial baton pass 
Um, and also, as you were talking about with Michelle Yeoh, there's a chance to spread the wealth a little bit, and then mm-hmm. maybe an upset can happen because you, they split the categories into drama and comedy. On the TV side, it is a temperature check. It is what you're describing. It is a, it is a version of the Emmys with a different eligibility window. Mm-hmm. So White Lotus is up there that, talking about season two already, right? Yeah, and there which are other- felt very of the moment, and I thought probably was like, Mm-hmm. A really nice representation of like this is what people really cared about within the last six months of television is the show. Ab- absolutely, and you know I, I I've made this reference before because I f- did feel like it was a significant moment, but because of where it's where these fall, they can have an outsized impact on how we are not just we're covering TV, but I think how people are engaging with it. Um, and I think about it's now ten years ago, but but Homeland season one premiered in September. I think of 2011 and Claire Danes won best actress uh, for that season in January of 2012. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, it was an anointing yeah. right? Of, yeah. of a whole new moment in TV. And that is still kind of exciting and, and should be fun TV to watch. But again, this is just way too many things all at once. It was an apology tour. It was a singing for your supper. Please, Mr. NBC, can we have more money to do this again? Um, it was a half-assed party. You know, like just a lot of people just didn't come. And mm-hmm. look, I mean, people in LA will cancel for any reason. The rain was a gift, but this did feel particularly like no, not everyone was on the same page about whether they wanted to engage with this or not. Yeah, um, I'd be curious. I, I read Matt's, uh, Matt Bellany's like behind the scenes piece that he sent out in the uh, What I'm Hearing newsletter for Puck. And mm-hmm. it was interesting. He said that Gerard's monologue went over pretty well, like that, mm-hmm. that there were some laughs and that it was the talk of the room. But at the same time, it felt like uh, Gerard lost the room like after that, like that he couldn't or what, whatever the situation was like this year in particular, it felt like way more chaotic coming back from break hmm. and him being like, Hey, like, Oh, we're, we're I, starting. I, 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 like we're doing it. I, like I was reading about this too, though, that someone was saying that it, they hung him out to dry because often there's like a stentorian, like announcer voice. Okay. Being like, and now we're back to the golden globes. And that's the sort of the shush everyone, like lowering the lights in the lobby at, at intermission, but they didn't do that. So he really was trying to like lasso cats, Okay, uh, dr- drunk, rich celebrity cats in that moment. But just to run through some stuff, I mean, like, again, if you didn't watch the show, which is most of you in America, um, you may just have looked at the winners and been like, you know, an interesting and not, uh, not too problematic night in terms of quality, right? Like Jeremy Allen White won for the Bear. Mm-hmm. Did the Bear win? No, but that's awesome. He deserves to win. Abbott Elementary won. Uh, Tyler Williams won. Quinta won. Um, as you said, White Lotus won. Amanda Seyfried won. Like these are worthwhile things. I didn't watch Blackbird, but people who are more plugged in than me said really good things about Paul Walter Hauser's performance. That's cool. Yeah, you know that it's. It, I'm not really going to argue with any of that. Zendaya, how do you feel about Costner winning? From Santa Barbara, do you feel like that was a nice balm on a He's night? He's really when it was- good on Yellowstone. It's just, it's just one of those things where it took years to get Yellowstone into to being taken seriously by the awards, and now Yellowstone sucks. <laughs> you know, what I mean? that sometimes it's terrible that, when that happens. But that sometimes does happen, where it's like by the time a show starts getting recognized, it's actually past its prime. I wouldn't. I mean, maybe Yellowstone doesn't suck, but it's not not my favorite season of Yellowstone. Can I also just give one side note, which is. Um, I think that we as people like to see modesty, empathy, friendship, kindness modeled for us by people we admire, even in the arts. 
That said, when you were in the audience and you were in like hour five of the Golden Globes and Banshees of Inishirin wins and Martin McDonough, one of the sharpest tongued dramatists in the world, gets on stage with Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, two of the most like roguish and charming actors living, and they all hand the mic to the producer who just says like, it's very nice that we're all friends. We all had a nice time in Ireland together being friends, Barry, Colin, Brendan, of course, and Martin. It is nice that, we're, you, that we're all that, friends. I don't think you've seen Banshees of Inishirin, but that literally no. sounds like a character from Banshees of Inishirin. Right. So, okay, so it was on brand. But you know what I mean? Like, But that, objectively, was a shitty speech. Like, yeah. No offense. I'm happy for him. They did seem like lovely people, but that's not what we want in these award shows. And they can't really control for that. I mean, they've tried to control for that in the past by like, you know, when they, which was at the Oscars, which was the award show recently that like, had everyone submit their list so there should just be a chiron of like people's agents so they wouldn't have to say those things. Oh They've yeah. They tried to correct for that. It Did doesn't Soderbergh really do that? Where it was like, mm, they, here's no. my team so you don't have to go through Barry, Zach, Barry, like whoever. And we're all friends. <laughs> Steven, yeah. We all had a lovely time. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Gerard, I thought was certainly, uh, certainly Gerard and uh what what I would I would probably imagine is his last hosting gig in a major award ceremony. I thought that there were two performances. I thought there was his monologue, which was very consistent with what his stand-up is like. And it's mm-hmm. both intimate and confrontational uh, and interesting, but kind of also not was like, was certainly not like Welcome America gets psyched for three hours of an award show. It was sort of yes. a, a side bit. And then uh, the thing that I think has kind of like sort of become the dominant voice of hosting going forward after that was just like Twitter roast jokes that deflate the momentum and enthusiasm for the show afterwards. So it was basically like two separate performances, but I remain a big fan of his. I just don't know if hosting the golden globes is like, it's not his life mission, you know? No. And it's also, I mean, it was a tough assignment. He, he definitely, and I don't blame him for this, was like, this was a good paycheck. Yeah, yeah. I hope it was. He deserves it. He deserves the shine. He's. I think he's a genius, especially, you know, doing the thing that he does, which is stand-up. There is a case to be made every time there is a, and I, I wouldn't call this a misstep because I did think it was bold and he was a good, he's an interesting choice. And I enjoy, like you said, I enjoyed a lot of what he did. I'm happy he was there. But anytime like one of these shows goes hostless or like, let's have some actors do it. You're just reminded that like, actually hosting is a skill. You know, and so having someone who just is a pleasant host can. First help. of all, I just give it to Regina Hall. Second of all, if not her, she just, she just hosted the Oscars. I know, but I'm just saying she's really fucking good at it. So just yeah, let her good. rock. And the thing she's that she delightful. did that was really good to the extent I don't know whether or not she was like, I have a bit if Kevin Costner wins and I'm going to do this, or if that was just like I've had three Chardonnays and now it's like this is what I'm going to say. My favorite hosting not even hosting but even like presenters are always people who have that almost improv comedy training to kind of roll with the way things are going and Anna Gassar yeah. and Nicole Byer were like the fucking funniest thing of the night yeah. and it kind of reminded me of of like those Will Ferrell Kristen Wiig and that's why Tina and Amy are really good too is because they can kind of come up with stuff both written and also in the moment but I mean who gives a shit it's just an award show. It's certainly not something I'm losing sleep over. It's just my note. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. There's 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 really two, and we can keep you know we'll keep having these conversations two three times a year. Like it's kind of just a two track thing. Like one is 
I think they should do a better job making these as TV shows. I just think they, I, I, I know it's hard. I know people much smarter and more connected and more Steven Soderbergh than I have, have, have tried and, and with varying degrees of success. But I think what, what you're saying about who should be on the mic and how often they should be on the mics to keep it moving, to give a sense of consistency, I feel like that's there to be fixed. The secondary point, which is these used to feel like events because there was a larger monoculture and it felt like a celebration that everyone was invited to and was interested in attending. Yeah. Those days are gone. And you can't really fix that. So here we are. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Would you like to talk about Ant-Man or would you like yes. to talk about Bella Bajaria next? I want to talk about Ant-Man because, um, because I'm passionate about Ant-Man. No, because I have two, I don't know, like, I don't want to go into the multiverse of madness here, but I do have two almost um, diametrically opposed takes on this. Okay. This has been, I think there was a teaser for, it's Ant-Man colon. Quantumania. That's it? Ant-Man and the Wasp colon Quantumania. Just Quantumania, not into Quantumania, not vibing out to Quantumania, not Quantumania Mm -hmm. in the the quantum of madness. Okay. Uh, Not, wasn't this, wasn't Quantum the Soul Sides label or something? Is that am I mixing oh, yeah, this up? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the Dusty Fingers, yeah, um, funk label. Uh, no, he was the no, closer after Eckers label. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, it's all callbacks on the show today. That's people love that. I, I just want to ask you a serious question. Mm-hmm. Finally, uh, I'm not like the biggest Ant Man guy. You know, oh, I think it's right. I think it's pretty good, but it's like it's brave of you. you it's funny that. that this is a trilogy. Like I, I didn't know that we needed to mm-hmm. conclude this saga. My question for you is: Is did they just remake the Spider-Man movie? Because in the trailer, it is Scott is big mad that he lost out on five years of yeah. his daughter's youth. Right? He yeah. largely has come through the blip, the snap, whatever all that stuff he's come through like intact came out the other side saved the world but is mad that his whatever age 20 year old daughter he missed out on ages like 12 to 17 right yeah mm-hmm. okay and she was reca- recast during those five years too that must be very uh, discombobulating and so his response to that is to mm-hmm. upset the space-time continuum by entering into a plea agreement with kang the conqueror right yeah no notes seems fine did the people of Sokovia get such a choice? You know, like, I guess we're everybody at fuck in the fucking Marvel universe just gets a do over, right? Has no one ever been like, what I want to do over is Ultron dropping Sokovia? Justice for Sokovia? Yeah. How come nobody is thinking about the bigger picture? Everybody's just like, I'm too famous or I missed I out this. on my teenage daughter being really nasty to me for five years. Yeah, good point on that, by the way. You know what I mean? Wow. And instead, nobody's like, you know what we should do is go back and make sure that Sokovia doesn't get dropped on its head. Yeah, there are weeks when I hear Bill and Sal do Parent Corner where I'm like, they would take this blip. 
You know oh, what I mean? Like oh, they would yeah. they would blip themselves TF out of those five years <laughs> and just come back as conquering heroes. Um, do you think the president of Sokovia was invited to Earth 616's Golden Globes? <laughs> Sean Penn introduced him. <laughs> <laughs> I do think so. Our, our fictional country had a great cultural history yeah. until your murderous robot dropped us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least so the, Sokovi- the Sokovia Accords have cleaned that all up. They you know? live on. Yeah. Um, there's, two, there's two answers here. Uh, the most obvious one is Marvel didn't make the Spider-Man movie. You I know. know. And I do like, th- I, know, I know you know that, but plot. I feel like they're mad. <laughs> but, but also multiverse, like the last two movies have been like, no, no, but we're doing it now. Right. And the Spider-Man movie did it better and did it definitively. So that is a weird position to be in. And that is definitely affecting everything going forward. I, I think the big question for me is just like, Anyone who watched, because the the Ant-Man movies hold a weird place because they were such, it was such a heat check for Feige when he was in his glory, right? Where that only existed during the very, very like Wild West days of the MCU when he was just taking meetings with people and they were like, I want to do this. And he was like, cool, great. So Edgar Wright was like, I want to do Ant-Man. They're like, that's weird. Sure. We're going to announce it. We'll get Paul Rudd. And then Edgar Wright left the project. And then to the pure hubris of like, we're still going to make an Ant-Man movie. Mm -hmm. And then it was a hit. And it was pretty good. Pretty good to the degree that I think some people who don't love the overall, you know, arc of Thanos are like, those movies are fun. I enjoy sure. those movies. I enjoyed the so, movies too, yeah. So the, so the decision to do the reverse Thor and suddenly make it a heart-rending drama with enormous universal stakes is bizarre. Like, I don't see any evidence of Michael Pena in the quantum verse, just reciting things that have just happened across the quantum verse. So that is a weird tonal shift for the movie. My biggest pet, my biggest nitpick, if mm-hmm. you'll allow me to, from this trailer. And, you know, it's just a small thing. It's just a small thing. I think most people won't care about this or won't notice. But my main takeaway is that this looks absolutely like shit. <laughs> Not the movie. I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. I mean, visually, this just feels like the absolute endgame, pun intended, of this we'll just draw the movie behind you. Please come to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Open-ended ticket. It's just absolute low-grade, a thousand CGI houses around the world drawing purple stuff. That And, and uh, that is a bummer. It's, it's a weird. Bummer isn't it that weird to kind of long now. for the, the back lots of Atlanta? Or, or be like, justice for Eternals. At least she went to a place... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, at least you you slowly, slowly caping up for Eternals. Yeah. Eter- by by this time next year, it's going to be the yes. Lost Classic: colon Eternals, a yes. solely solo Andy Greenwald yes. podcast. The, the rewatchable only by me. I'm yeah. caping up like the great Lost Eternal Icarus. If you remember, I do. <laughs> Just kidding. You don't. Nobody remembers. I still think about that lonely Eternals I, Lego I, I set. I still on think the about shelves. being in the Eter- at the Eternals. Did that come out during a COVID wave? Sure. Uh, yeah. I remember being in that theater and being like, "This might be the last movie I ever go see in the theater." <laughs> they may how have just feel about that. They may have just like forgotten how to do this. I, I um, and then I, I went and saw you. I saw Megan last night, so I guess I'm I'm back. You know, you're back, baby. I'm way no, back I, in the theater. I, the visual stuff is just a bummer to me because I, I think the other half of it that is slightly encouraging to me, th- there's two things. One is big Paul Rudd truther over here. 
Paul Rudd is a great actor and a great movie star. He's always good. He's never bad. He can do drama and comedy. He's fun to watch. He's great to root for. This might be a smart pivot because we don't have Downey. Downey's not walking through the doors. Evans isn't walking through the doors. I'm not saying he's the same as them. I'm not saying his Q rating is the same, but you do have a great performer who people are emotionally invested in. So give him more to do. Uh You know what I mean? Like he's earned the starting slot. It's not a bad idea to sneak in the next phase through him because he's one of the few bridge actors who's still agreeing to be a part of this. I don't know if he's a part of it beyond this movie, but he at least is helping kick in the door to do that. So I I like that. The second thing is this entire trailer is a, you know, again, not all of our listeners watch the markets move the way you and I do. You know what I mean? So they might not be accustomed to these kinds of just sort of performative flexes. Stay opening my stock app on my phone. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. It's definitely not on the 12th page of apps for me. Um, This is an enormous show of investor confidence in Jonathan Majors. I will will go out. I'm going to say two things. Well, I'm going to say this thing first. I'm out there on the diving board with Jonathan Majors. Yeah. And if he goes, I go. You know what I mean? I, like, I love this. Yes. I'm, yes. I'm willing to say that we are on the precipice of and have seen evidence of the most interesting performance and maybe character in the entire MCU. Yeah. Why not? That's right. And we also know from decades of this shit that genre movies live and die on the villains. Mm-hmm. And they haven't the had one have to- in a long time. Yeah. They haven't had one in a long time. And this, there is old, there's a little bit of the old, the old Feige in this. The like, they, they invested early. We, I've, I've made this joke before, but it's like these, you know, it's like the, the, it's like the Mariners pouring $300 million into what's, I'm kind of blanking on the kid's name, but like their 19 year old soon to be megastar. They're like, we got one. Yeah. And we know we have, and we're building everything around him. And I think that's awesome. So I agree. So he's so compelling. And the choices he's clearly already making are so interesting that all of the CGI space snakes just vanish behind him. And is, if this is two, I know this sounds silly to say this, two stage actors, really. Shout out to everyone else who saw Paul Rudd in uh, uh, As You Like It or he, Midsummer Night's Paul Dream Rudd at Lincoln stayed Center. Up in Neil LeBute plays. That's what I'm saying. Him and Majors just going tete a tete. You know what I mean? Just, just true westing it. Somewhere in the quantum realm. That's, that, that's, cool. You should start doing playwright bullshit. Is like when, you're, when you see you <laughs> this see is classic Shepherd. Antim, Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum media yeah. is is serving Sam Shepherd. That's that should be your new bit vibe. They're, 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 I'm getting distinct <laughs> Romulus Linney vibes here, yeah. guys, and I am here for it. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. It, it the other thing that I think is interesting, just in terms of the way we cover this stuff, is I do appreciate that they are like. Tap, tap, tap on Mike, clears throat. Okay, we're starting again. Mm-hmm. This We're doing it now. You know, we've had our fun. We all love the Eternals and what a romp that was. But now we're telling you, what, we're doing a big one again. That was, and, it was definitely a romp for sure. That's it's how a, I choose to remember it. comedy. Uh, I have a quick question about the visual aspect because we've bagged on the way these things look for better part of two years now. Yeah. Is it the technology and the conditions under which maybe people are doing VFX, that could be a huge factor. And there's been reporting about like Marvel just has you on these crazy deadlines and then they'll like change everything at the last second and say, no, like put this here and do this differently. Is it that or is that there 
of all the things that the source material provides, uh, these rich stories, these these sort of memorable characters, does it have like much of a concept of space or the quantum verse or like yes. I don't really remember looking through the comic books and being like I can't wait to see this represented on the big screen. See, I, I disagree with you there. I think that the thing you would that know set, better than I would. Yeah, the thing that set Marvel Comics apart was the absolute what the fuckness visual imagination of mm. its core creators, like Jack Kirby. Like Jack Kirby, who created the Eternals, by the way, drawing these things, drawing the negative zone in Fantastic Four comics. I mean, I think, I mean, he was just kind of like a, you know, a, a post-war like cigar in mouth and will draw until he drops dead kind of dude. I don't think he was a druggie, but they were mirroring like the 60s counterculture in such a wild way. And then you get to the 70s and a lot of this, I'm just riffing on stuff that our buddy Sean Howe wrote about in his phenomenal book about Marvel Comics, uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. Like, it, but the time you get to the 70s and a lot of the space stuff that James Gunn really brought into the MCU is happening. You have people like Jim Starlin actively taking acid and then writing these comic book scripts. Like, it is cool and it is exciting. And it's an increasingly a reminder that maybe comic book art is the best place for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Because there is a, and, and I think to, to go back to your original question, it remains unclear to me whether it is a failure of creative visual imagination in those who are responsible for the VFX work these days or a factor of everyone's just stressed and over, like you just can't do it. Like everyone's under deadline, they change their mind, so everything ends up looking like a silver space wolf. Yeah, and that's just I, where we are. I don't know. I mean, like the two movies that we've referenced in this conversation, is Cyber Man Man, or the Eternals and Doctor Strange and uh, the Multiverse of Madness, and those were directed by two auteurs. You know, Chloe Zhao, yes. Zhao directed Eternals, and Sam Raimi directed Doctor Strange. And there are parts of both of those movies that look distinctly like those directors. Like there are yes. moments where. I think even in in Doctor Strange, like there's like Raimi esque flourishes in some of the monsters and sort of dream demons that appear in the beginning of that movie, and and even in that whole long sequence where it's like in the in the castle in the in limbo somewhere, like that's very Sam Raimi. It's like that haunted house vibe. Yeah, and, and like when Salma Hayek as the Eternal Ajax shits in a bucket, that is exactly like Nomadland, right? That's right. Like that that's was right. that was that was incredible. Uh, and I really salute Salma because that was like a that that's a, brave. Yeah, uh, but I, I don't I, not, I, I don't think that the directors that they choose seem to be uh, empowered to like see their vision through the that end of the thing. So then what no, happens it, is like you wind up getting these kind of like if you have a movie that is largely taking place in this world in this sort of sci-fi f- fake reality it kind of winds up looking like trash because it gets put together without any authorial vision. I mean, that's maybe, you know, tourist viewing of no, movies I that... It's also a byproduct of the fact that, and we've heard this anecdotally, I'm sure this isn't absolute universal gospel for everything that they do, but it, we've heard this enough to believe that there's aspects of the story that are true, which is these movies are so expensive and it's so difficult to coordinate and the release dates are so crucial that even as creatives swap in and out, new screenwriters come on, new production designers come on, new directors come on. The action set pieces are already boarded mm-hmm. before the people get involved. So then they are writing their story around the four set pieces that have already been designed and have already been sent to various effects houses around the world. Like, that's just the nature of these movies. And so it's a bummer. 
And also there might not be, you know, the same creative participation because we were on Monday, we were talking a little bit with Sean about Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Mm-hmm. And Dune is another $200 million big IP genre movie, but it felt absolutely designed and distinct. And honestly, when you see someone's aesthetic vision, even if it's not your own, given the yeah, full you admire it. weight, yeah. you, you, it, it's, you just admire it. It's almost transcendent. You're like, I, I just, that's amazing. He, you know, these dragonfly space or not space, you know, speedsters in that movie are just little, the runes on the wall. Like it, you're in someone's mind and that's the, that's what these things could be. The Marvel movies, I mean, I don't, I think even if we ever had someone like Kevin Feige on a podcast, I don't think he'd be like, well, that's apples and we make oranges. Like you sure. just cannot do that. But as Marvel has pushed further and further into the quantum realms, and I mean that broadly for a number of reasons, we've talked about them before, like it, you know, it's different stakes. Um, there's less death. There's less real world stuff. It probably plays better internationally. You can just have your actors on set in Atlanta and draw the rest in later. All these reasons, um, they've gone further and further into the stuff that should be the most creative. And then, you know, we get Taika shooting Christian Bale weeping in a Walmart parking lot. You know, yeah. it, it's just, which I think <laughs> I is actually, actually true, right? That would have been cool, actually. <laughs> like if it, they right, just, if they hadn't CGI'd out the Walmart. Like yeah. that would have been an interesting choice. So that part of it is 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 a huge bummer. And it's also why that, you know, do you, you haven't seen Black Panther yet, right? You haven't seen Wakanda? I haven't, no. So when if and when you do see it and we do talk about it, I think this is the conversation to have because I had a lot of problems with that movie, but the cultural and um, genre world building remains pretty distinct and mm-hmm. they seem to prioritize it in those world, in that move, in those movies, which is why those movies are better. I'll definitely see One it of the reasons. before Ant-Man comes out. Uh, you know, I'm a completist when it comes to that you stuff. Are, you are. Let's talk about this Bella Bajaria piece. It's been a while since we've kind of like run through. I'm not going to do like a line-by-line reading of this very exhaustive and well-done uh, profile that Rachel Syme did in The New Yorker. Uh, Bella Bajaria is basically the head of television for Netflix. I'm not sure what her exact title is. Uh, but she essentially runs TV for Netflix and replaced Cindy Holland, who had sort of been the original architect of Netflix's television strategy the one that gave us House of Cards and Orange is the New Black and a lot of the shows that Netflix streaming sort of built its reputation on. And then Bella Bajaria came, I think, from uh, more of a broadcast background, more of a also is outlined in this show, a very pragmatic executive who was very good at saving shows that were being kind of neglected by the networks that were originally broadcasting them. She was the head of Universal Television, the studio, mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, she was basically when this is the short version of hopefully short version of this is as rules changed about who could produce shows and what studios could make shows for what. And so all these networks and then eventually streaming services created their own or resurrected their own in-house uh, studios. She was tapped to lead Universal Television Group, and then Universal immediately had signed all of its successful creators to overall deals, people like Michael Schur coming off of The Office before Parks and Rec, Mindy Kaling, many more shows than that. I mean, like all the Law and Order shows come out of Universal Television. So she was in charge of that studio. And to your point, yes, like when NBC didn't buy Mindy Project or Brooklyn Nine-Nine, she turned around and sold them to Fox. Yeah. So she was she so that was that was both canny and and pragmatic, and she had good relationships with a lot of talented creators that we admire. So this piece, I think, I wanted to ask you this question to start with. So I encourage everybody to read it. I think what it really gives you, there's a, if you're like an avid watch listener, I'm sure you kind of have 
a sense of the story of Netflix from this piece. There's a lot of personal details about uh, Bella Bajaria that are quite interesting, biographical details. What's amazing is the level of access that uh, Rachel got, where she is essentially like in meetings, at lunches, going throughout, going through the on, world. On private jets. On private Hungary. jets, yeah, right. And uh, I wanted to ask you this, put your, put your creative cap on. Like your, I'm, I still make TV cap on. Do you read this piece mm-hmm. and come out of it being like, that's a pretty savvy operator. And if I had a show that I thought like had the potential to be successful, I still think Netflix has gives me the opportunity to get in front of the most eyeballs across the world at once. Or yeah. does it send a chill down your spine and make you think that like TV is moving fully into its its uh its flop phase where it's just like everything is buzzwords and the idea of like maintaining relationships and fostering creativity is kind of a thing of the past. It's, it is the question coming out of this story. I have to say I kind of zagged on it. I think the story is interesting and interestingly reported and written. And it does feel that it is really set up to make that narrative the winner. The narrative that this woman is interesting and savvy, but in, but as another person anonymously says in the piece, not not an intellectual and is going around the world glad-handing, dumbing everything down in the process. And there's a lot of like sort of, you know, juicy details like speaking to uh, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix. He's speaking from his 17-acre compound in Montecito. You know, again, prayers up. I hope that the irrigation ditches worked over the past week up there for him. Um it was hard, though, for me to read this and feel like anything other than the fact that she's doing a very good job at her job. Mm-hmm. And her job is primarily to fly to Mexico City and be like, what shows are we making that are popping here? Great. Can we export the shows that are popping here to Egypt? Because we have a lot of new talent deals there. Can we bring them over here? Can we work with you? Can we build this? And it's not just that she's making The Floor is Lava in 64 countries. She is also making All the Light We Cannot See uh, an adaptation of the award-winning novel with Mark Ruffalo and Sean Levy directing in Budapest right now. Like, so there's there's stuff happening. There's stuff that's clicking. There's stuff you know that I think she's happy to take credit for that is even like critically lauded. My main takeaway was it's just this is a profile of a woman who is very successful in a very specific business, and that business doesn't align with what you and I want to watch on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's fine. I think what's bizarre to me on like on a macro level is okay so in the story as chris said they basically are rachel syme sort of narrates the the story that we've been telling to a degree which is cindy holland was head of programming for netflix and made the deals that got the emmy voters attention that brought talent like like rafael bob waxberg who did bojack horseman is quoted extensively being like this was home this was family they took a chance on me then they stopped knowing the names of the characters on my show and i knew we were done and uh, Ted Sarandos, basically in a move worthy of season one of the Golden Globe winning drama series House of the Dragon, was like, actually, you're the heir to my throne after all that, to Bella Bisharia and removing Cindy Holland and saying like, you, Bella Bisharia, who come up, who came up with Nailed It and Flora's Lava and all this stuff, you're going to run around the world and make us what we're going to become. And what we're going to become is broadly television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the way I read the story more than anything else was... Um, and, you know, there are juicy details, like demanding that Rachel Syme doesn't, Bella Bajari on a private plane being like, don't write that I like Chardonnay, or stuff like wearing a pin that says, like, 
what is it like everything for art or whatever <laughs> while she's leading a 24-hour taco crawl in Mexico City, which by the way, Bella, let's let's do it. We've really fucked up because if the goal is a system where there's a lot of stuff and some of it's schlocky and most of it's sticky and some of it's entertaining and a little bit of it is actually really, really high quality and good and the the first stuff subsidizes the second stuff. Guys, we had that. That was television. Yeah. That's literally what this medium was for 40 or 50 years. And then we burned it down in the name of shareholder growth and streaming opportunities. And now we're mad because they're doing it again. I, it was just, it, broadly, that was confusing for me, you know, because, I, yeah, I, I, I do think that they should be making better shows. And I think the big sin seems to be that in their desire to become a global company, they seem to have neglected the American Yeah, they've also, like, I think audience. started to have a little bit more of a rigid, it's either hit or it's shit binary where like yes, they, they sure. either have something that it's like if this isn't popping i don't really care how much money we spent on it or how much we believe in the the, the totality of the project but 1899 is a perfectly good example of a show that maybe even you and i didn't think worked in its first season but given the track record of the creators and the success of dark at least creatively like you'd think that maybe they'd be like if we're going to go into this project we need to know that it's not going to get wrapped up in 10 hours that- that's um, a great point. You want, they should, he, yeah, and maybe they, they need, should they need have to it. invest in the things that, if you believe in something, believe in it. Right. I, I think that matters. But sure. there is something kind of, and we're, we were getting on in, in this pod, I don't want to go into a thousand different tangents, but uh, this whole article really made me think a lot about Steven Soderbergh's uh, media diary that he publishes oh, at the yeah. beginning of at every year about the previous year. And he had just done, he had just released his 2022 one this year. And I usually go through it and I'll make like, especially with the movies, I'll just write down every movie that he watched because I find that he has a lot of really great, like kind of, especially sub Turner classic movies level old Hollywood films to watch. Um, Usually like noir movies to watch from that uh, 40s and 50s era that I haven't seen or haven't even heard of. But the fun part about his list is it's like literary fiction seeing watching sorcerer seven times watching david fincher's not yet released the killer seven times in a week or whatever and then literally hundreds of hours of shit tv like not shit tv but just like he watches a lot of bravo he watches a lot of below deck he watched cheer and i i sometimes try to derive like a um unifying theory of soderbergh out of these lists and so I was going through all the shows he was watching and and so many of them are like catching killers and, you know, mm-hmm. these true crime. And I realized he's just going through the true crime documentary tab of Netflix. Like I just pulled that up and it's just, he's just watching them pretty much in yeah. not order, but like whatever picks his picks. And like, that's called watching television. That's called like, I turned on, I got home at five mm-hmm. and the first thing I did was turn on sports center in the background so that there was a voice in the house while I made dinner. You know, and maybe it's a slightly more active or, or as John Landgraf would say, leaning in uh, re- engagement than that. Like, I'm sure Steven Zerberg just likes true crime and it's just like, I'll watch a 37 minute documentary about the BTK guy. But this is what they're making. They're making TV. They're not making uh, a new step forward in long form narrative screened culture. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and that's okay. Sure. That's okay. I, I think that. I think we we got this last ten years were very confusing. <laughs> I think <laughs> in many many ways for us individually and collectively, and we 
that when people, I mean, I think even in the piece, I, I don't know if, if, if she's quoting who, Matt Bellany, who is quoted in the piece or someone else talking about like how a market correction is coming. I think a market in the industry, and, and we've been talking about that as well, a market correction might also be coming for our expectations. Yep. Where the majority of things being made, there was a moment when it just seemed like everything was a major A-list star combining with a killer script with a brilliant idea and HBO slash Netflix slash Apple slash Amazon is going to pour $200 million into it. And that was cool. You know, it was it was great to be eating at a three-star Michelin restaurant on our TV every night uh, or have that option. But it was, it's a little rich in all senses. Mm-hmm. And that's not sustainable. Now, you know, I, I wish there were more risk-taking and I understand to a degree, I try to have some compassion as to why there's not. And I do think the tech mentality or the global expansion mentality can run contra to that, that purely like, we believe in you and we're going to give this a shot. I did think it was interesting that among the successes of recent Netflix, Queen's Gambit is mentioned. And mm-hmm. everything that we have heard, both on the record and off the record, is that Netflix is like, why are we spending money on this chess show? I don't know who greenlit this, but I don't know if those people are still here, but this isn't what we do. And then it is a huge success and is incredibly compelling to millions of people around the world and wins awards. And that type of thing seems to have been iterated out of the Netflix development algorithm, which is a bummer. Yeah. Which isn't to say that, you know, again, as Rachel Stein points out in the piece, like the Tim Robinson show is on Netflix. I think you should leave is still on Netflix. Like there are yeah, these and also, things that I mean, exist, Squid Game cost twenty one million dollars, so it wasn't exactly like a, a John Cassavetes movie. But Squid Game can still happen, and I think within well, yeah, the because, ecosystem of Netflix, you might see look all those naughty crime, like those Scandi crime shows that they have. Like I'm sure there are some that are better than others. I've watched some and been like, that was pretty good, and watched some of them and like this was just inane drone shots of snow while we find the killer that we knew who it was going to be for like four episodes. Like, I, I think that there's a variation of quality depending within those subsections of Netflix, but uh, I don't know. I, I also just think, I, I think for the last few weeks, if not months, we found ourselves in these sort of conversational cul-de-sacs where I end up saying something like, oh, I, I feel weird advocating the business side or over-representing the business side when we want to be talking about art and culture. I think maybe the answer is there's too much business side in our art and culture in TV at the moment, which isn't to say it's not always a business and yada, yada, yada. But everyone is so fucking scared right now of whatever market correction or recession or whatever or or consolidation is coming that it feels like no decisions are free of that anymore. Like there is no just sort of gentle, supportive ecosystem like the one that told Donald Glover, we want to make a show with you. And we want you to have a writer's room. And he's like, no, I'm going to get my friends and we're going to rent a house for six months. And they say, cool. Like, actually, FX probably still would do that. But do you know what I mean? Like that that kind of ecosystem that just lets weird things happen, lets idiosyncratic visions develop. Everything feels at this moment like it's being developed through the scrim of, well, what world are we putting it out into? And what's it going to mean to my bottom line or my career you know, future if I do this? Yeah. You know, I feel like... I, and I think that's true for the second season of Somebody Somewhere, and I think it's true for the second season of House of the Dragon. And I think it's a bummer for both. And that's, I feel like, more of where we're at with things. It, 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 it just, it's starting to get, the McDLT isn't keeping the two sides apart anymore, that brilliant box. I feel like the hot side and the cold side of the industry, like yeah. the artistry and passion and the cold numbers game, which need each other, 
are getting a little, everything's getting a little lukewarm. I wonder also, and I often think this about the conversations that we have where it's like, if there's so much difference, if there's so many offerings available to people at literally the touch of a finger where you can just find 10 shows that satisfy a sub, sub, sub genre, Mm -hmm. personal algorithm itch that you want to scratch. It's harder and harder to say these are the five shows that we're talking about or the two shows that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. which is what it was like when we started this podcast 10 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we could just be like, there are like basically seven per, shows Per Bill Street, watch. 11 years ago. Yeah, but there's basically like seven shows that people watch this year that also listen to this podcast and we can go through these episode by episode. And all jokes aside, I think it's more difficult to, to do that now when there are seven shows a week that you could feasibly check out if not enjoy, but they get wiped off the table as soon as the next week's shows come along and you're waiting for the tidal wave coming off of Last of Us and you're waiting for Poker Face and you're, you know, all this other stuff it, that happens. It's really difficult to just be the generic TV watcher. And what is the, from a business perspective and a corporate perspective, what is the end game and goal here? Because Netflix and Bella Bajaria have been ruthlessly successful. You know what? I'm not even going to like couch it in a negative word. They've just been successful in enacting a business plan that they put into effect before we even realized st- it was happening. I still think if anybody gets they, a professional sports live contract, like the, the whole thing changes. I still think for that sure. that's, but, that's essentially the skeleton but, key that still remains. You don't think the SAG awards are going to push them over the edge? No, like I'm serious. Got, I mean, but, I think if one of these people get the Sunday ticket, or, or if one of these networks or streamers gets the Sunday ticket or gets League Pass... Didn't or, YouTube get it? Isn't yeah, weird? but like that's but, not like a programming offering, I guess. Right. But like if Apple were to get League Pass, or if Netflix were to get something, like it would be a big deal. Because that's when you start seeing I, people be like, I really don't need cable anymore. But but I think that Netflix's goal was different. Well, there's two things. There's a quote that's brilliant that I'm sure has been said and bandied about for years that I'd never noticed, which was, um, I don't know if it was Reed Hastings or Ted Sarandos at Netflix saying when they when they did House of Cards, I, this, this timeline was new to me, as revealed in this article, that they bought House of Cards and then acquired Lilyhammer to go out first as a proof of concept, like mm-hmm. test their ability to do this and to dump something all at once and what it would be like. So that's actually, so House of Cards really was the first, even though everyone's like, no, no, don't forget Lilyhammer. Lilyhammer aired first, but it, it existed because of House of Cards. But anyway, the quote from that time was, our goal as a company is to become HBO before HBO can become us. And that is really smart at that moment in time 10 years ago. And it kind of worked. No, it definitively worked for a time. Uh, and now nobody's anybody, but that's where we're at. But my point about what Bell has been doing around the world is been successful. Like we are going to seed this idea of production in dozens of countries and create must-see glut that there's just always something more for you, that you feel the need to service, to have the service in your life. And we're going to replicate this around the world. And every so often, one of those things, like Squid Game, will jump its silo and yeah. become a thing everywhere. And, and that's going to work. Um, my question is, and this is maybe the question of the industry is, but then what? Like in this piece, it's like, well, they lost half a billion dollars in value in one day when they didn't meet their latest earnings thing, but they're still spending $17 billion a year on content all around the world. They're just going to keep doing this. So what, I mean, maybe this is a question of capitalism, not Netflix, but what is the goal here? Is the goal to like make some good shows and be in the awards conversation and kiss your kids and put them to bed at night? Or is your goal just to eat an entire sector forever? That's and the I don't, goal. I, I guess I just, that's the goal. Because that's also like, 
they don't have like even there's nothing like with, with the ESPN story, for instance, where it's just like ESPN is eating off these carriage fees for decades. They have these sports rights, these live sports rights, which are still like no matter what you mm-hmm. put on in between these games, people want to watch mm-hmm. games. And I don't think Netflix just has the subscriber fee and they're going to start this ad supported tier or whatever. But like, there's no way that this is like a profitable business unless there isn't something else. You know, like yes. there's no way Netflix becomes profitable unless it becomes the thing you do is you get an internet subscription from your cable provider and then you just have Netflix up on your television. They it's don't sell funny. hardware. They don't sell yeah. advertising. They, you know, they don't I mean, have like, a theme park. Yeah. They don't have cruises. I, I think it's funny now to think about, and I'm sure this was actually, this was in the Jim Miller book. I don't mean to think say that he didn't like actually focus on this or reference it. But if you think about the, the, what's it called? Those guys have all the fun. The, the ESPN oral mm-hmm. history book. It's a great read. Really interesting. It's not that complicated a story, right? There was an opening, and people like to watch sports, and it got carriage fees. Meaning, ESPN got millions of dollars a year, whether you watch it or not, because everyone subscribed to cable. And so then, the interesting things in the book are generally about what happened in between receiving the checks and then cutting half of them back for the sports leagues, right? Like the largesse of the carriage fees is what allowed them to do things like 30 for 30 or the commercials we all laughed and liked or the SBs or whatever, like the, the interesting stuff in the margins, it was subsidized. Yeah. Right? It was yeah. subsidized. And so now we've cut the cord, good job by us, and everybody's got to sing for their supper, whether it's like, you know, whether it's The Wire or whether it's Floor is Lava and more people like Floor is Lava. So... Hello. Let's do a, <laughs> here's the next do, 11 years. Did you want to do Daddington? I don't even know if we have time. I think what I wanted to do, maybe we should prepare more for it, but because I was feeling like, you know, there are a lot of great unanswered questions on this podcast. Like, mm-hmm. what was my theory about Octung Baby that I teased six years ago and never revisited? Did you never actually say what it was? No. Oh. Nor will I ever. Maybe on our 21st. Will you ever say what you thought of Fablemans? Yeah, that one, I can't. I'm waiting on you. Okay. I'm not being secretive about the fact that I I'm sorry, I got really it. I, I, it. I had to go see Megan instead. That's I'm so disappointed in you. It's my cousin Megan, Megan Fableman. Um I wish it was part of the Fableman's universe. I there's a world where we could. Uh no, I I, I just did a drive by on Puss in Boots. It was mostly about drinking beer in a movie theater in the middle of the day. And it made me think like the reason I didn't like it is because it was just more noisy shouting kids entertainment that I didn't think had much value. I mean, my kids liked it. It wasn't objectionable. But were people fine. like, why do you hate Puss in Boots? Yeah, like it has a oh. high cinema score rating. And like, I enjoyed it with my kids. Like, yeah, we. if the kids like it, then it's pretty much good. Like, what if my it's a kids enjoyed it? it <laughs> what if one of my kids is Megan? Would she enjoy it? But So th- my point was just that it was really noisy and I didn't think it was very good beyond what it was. And then it made me think like how to bring you into this conversation. Thanks. It may be from the perspective of a Kiddington <laughs> uh-huh. being like, well, wait, what were we watching that was so good? And so we could, we could punt this to Monday because I was trying to think about like, there's just so much more entertainment now that when I'm thinking about being nine, like my older daughter is, I'm like, okay, well, the Karate Kid came out when I was seven, like Back to the Future when we were eight. Like these are movies that we watched. But also I remember it was a big deal to go see Splash in the theater. Okay. Mm -hmm. Splash begins with John Candy dropping change to look up the skirts of women. Like what I'm realizing is there was no kids entertainment. There was just a couple things. All of them were inappropriate. And it's a wonder. It's just a wonder we are who we are. Or maybe it's not a wonder. Yeah. So 
We, we, so I mean, I, we could save it. I, I have lots of anecdotes about inappropriate things that I watched when I was probably nine years old. Yeah, let's 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 do a more extended uh, Daddington and Kiddington retrospective because I do want to like be I want to be honest and forthright with our audience first and foremost, but also like I do think this needs some context because I am definitely definitely up on Snob Hill being like, well, this wasn't Miyazaki worthy, <laughs> and it's just like I didn't know who Miyazaki was until like six years ago. Does your daughter ago. enjoy so, that take? Um. God, I really hope not. Do they, that they, do know. they detect your vibe coming off you, the skin contact high that you have of like whether you yes. like something or not? You do? Yes. Yes. I try not to, but they know that Bluey is a good one. You know, they know the Miyazaki movies are good, but I'm I'm faking it. I'm faking it more with music where if they bring in something, I'm like, that's fun. Oh boy, that, that's snappy. That's and then good. When you hear that song for the 10,314th time mm-hmm. in two weeks, how do you feel about it? Well, mostly I focus on the taste of copper in my mouth because <laughs> I'm just I've just ground my tongue to dust. <laughs> Your slow disassociation that's been happening. Yeah, it's fine, guys. Everything's fine. Um, thanks to our Megan Kaya McMullen for producing <laughs> this podcast. Classic Megan, the classic Megan. Uh, we'll be back, I think, on Monday. I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about Last of Us, whether it's Monday or Tuesday. It's TBD. Oh. All right. You want to do a scheduling call now that we're all in the Zoom or should we end the podcast? It's it's Martin Luther King Day. Yeah, so I was going to observe the holiday. By by talking about The Last of Us? By reserving my thoughts until Tuesday. But, you know, we could do this off air. Okay. Justice for Montecito. Stay dry, (laughs) Brainskis. 